your brother's hungry? Don't you know your sister's lonely? Don't you know there's babies crying? Don't you know your brother's dying? Greetings. I'm Dr. Anthony Smith of Alashe Center for Enrichment, and welcome to Black Folks Do Therapy, where we endeavor to challenge you to think critically about your mental health and overall wellness. Our goal is to inspire you to align your actions and values so that you might live your life fully 86,400 seconds every single day. We do this in part by asking questions and raising issues that you may not have previously considered. Ultimately, we encourage you to do those things that help you to live your best life consistently, always working towards balance. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for our next episode of Black Folks Do Therapy. And we are here this Thursday evening. We're going to be talking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Kevin Coakley. Dr. Coakley is the incoming chair of the psychology department at the University of Texas and is currently the director of a policy institute that he's gonna tell us more about in a few moments. And we have been knowing each other for about 30 years, well, 28, 27, somewhere like that. Um, yeah, time has really flown. We were students together in the Association of Black Psychologists. So we're gonna talk a little bit about kind of the path to becoming a black psychologist and what that's been about and why you know he even chose this path to begin with. But let me just welcome you to the show. How you doing today? I'm I'm doing all right, brother. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you for agreeing to come on. Um, so let's jump right in and talk a little bit about um, what you're doing now and how you have come to be doing what you're doing. Okay, so um, as you mentioned, I am. A professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, I have a joint appointment um, in educational psychology, which is where I will be the um, um, incoming chair, and African and African diaspora studies, otherwise uh, known as Black studies. Mm -hmm. I have um, been here since 2007, so I guess that makes it about 13 years. And and of course, I've been a professor now for I don't know 23, 24 years, something like that. And I also am director of what's called the um, Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis. Um, we call it um, IUPRA, and it's basically it's a Black Policy Institute. It's an institute that is situated within Black Studies at, at the University of Texas, and it's a pretty, um, I think, a really novel um, idea and concept. I think that we may be one of only a a handful of universities um, that has both um, a, a depart an academic department, which is we call African and African Diaspora Studies, um, a center, uh, which is called the Warfare Center for African and African American Studies, um, this Policy Institute, again, the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis, and we also have uh, Black art galleries. And so all four of those units constitute Black studies. And, and while I'm trained as a council psychologist, um, I have been involved in Black studies really for pretty much the duration of my um, career in the academy. When I started at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale, um, which I know you're very familiar with, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I had I was you know in the psychology department, but I also was affiliated with Black Studies at, at SIU Carbondale. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> when I went from there to the University of Missouri, Columbia, 
um, where I was also in the department of, um, I think they called it education and school and counseling psychology. I also had an appointment in black studies. And so of course, when I came here at the University of Texas at Austin, um, before we had a, a, a formal um, department, we had the center for African and African American studies. So I had an affiliation with the center. And then once the department um, came into being, um, I had a joint appointment. So I've really been involved in black studies my entire um, sort of life. And so for me, it made sense um, being sort of immersed um, and raised and socialized in black psychology and black psychology is a core part of black studies. So it, it just made sense to me. You know, I, I you know, you mentioned Southern Illinois and, and uh, for those that don't know, that's where I did my graduate work and, and got my master's and PhD from Southern Illinois University. And while there, after my first year, um, Dr. Guthrie, Robert Guthrie was my advisor and he had come on the six months after I started, he came halfway through that year in the psychology department. And then they quickly made him, they needed a chair of the Black American Studies Department. So he took that over the summer before my second year and he brought me over to that department with him. So I spent most of my time the next three years in Black American, as, as a matter of fact, I had his office right across the hall from him. And most of my time was spent over there. I even taught several classes um, in Black American studies um, my third and fourth year. So I think it is something that speaks to the coalescence of the two disciplines uh, that you know it's a natural joining together because when we're talking about doing Black psychology and working with Black folks, a lot of time that's informed by the history of things that have happened to us as black people in this country. And so it just goes together seamlessly. And so it makes sense to, to hear this progression that you had. So I'm interested to hear more about this amazing institute. I didn't realize that you have four different divisions there. And can you tell us a little bit about what those are doing and how that's impacting um, our community at large? Yeah, so um, so when I when I got arrived here at the, at the University of Texas um, in 2007, as I mentioned, there was just um, what was what was called the Warfare Center of African American Studies, and we, being a sort of being affiliated with that, we wanted to make sure that we had the ability to diversify the campus and to um, bring on Black faculty. But as a center, as you, I'm sure you know, centers don't have faculty lines. So we did not have the ability, the autonomous ability to to hire um, black faculty. We had to work with other, you know, like departments and and really sort of I think the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back came when we were working with the psychology department and not education psychology, because that, that's separate from psychology, um, you know, on our campus. Um, we were working with the psychology department and trying to um, you know hire a, a black psychology professor and so they had two candidates and we were involved um, with the the sort of search process and you know we liked you know one candidate in particular they liked and the candidate was incredibly like strong academically he was a very prolific researcher he was an up-and-coming star um, we liked him a lot particularly because of the nature of the work that he was doing um, as it related to sort of um, 
implicit bias and police interactions with the communities and that sort of thing. Well, the psychology department did not like him. They, they among other things, they thought that he was arrogant. Um, they, you know, were susceptible to rumors that they had heard about him that were not confirmed and that we felt like, frankly, they were just being messy. Um, he was clearly the stronger candidate. And so they liked the other candidate. And so um, they ended up not going without recommendation and it caused a lot of tension. And and for us, it, it, it really sort of um, was symbolic of the importance that we get our own um, department where we would be in control of hiring and determine who we hired in terms of black faculty. And so once, you know, so that started a process of, of, you know, working together to create a black studies department. And part of that sort of conversation also entail, you know, what else could we do or should we do to really enhance black studies at the University of Texas? And so this idea of a policy institute um, was, was discussed. So in, in Texas, we have the, um, what we call sort of the Black Caucus. Mm -hmm. And the, their official name is the Texas um, Legislative Black Caucus. And there were members of the caucus who were really interested in and having some resources at the University of Texas that they could sort of um, rely on to, to provide them with policy analyses, uh, with data, with research that would help them advance their legislative agendas that you know would be working on behalf of Black folks. And so, their desire to sort of want to have that sort of re resource um, sort of coalesced with some of the conversations that were taking place at the University of Texas around, you know, maybe sort of having a, some sort of policy institute. And so that 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 converged. And so this idea of, of a, essentially a black policy institute uh, came to fruition. And that was really exciting. I was involved on the search committee for, you know, um, finding the inaugural director and never, of course, imagining that I would eventually become the director myself. Uh -huh. And so it's it's a really cool idea. So basically, what we do as an institute is we we have um, several sort of thematic areas that center around criminal justice, education, health and mental health, um, income and wealth, and um, housing. And what we do is essentially we focus on uh, policy issues in those areas um, that impact Black folks. And so we write policy briefs, issue briefs, numbers briefs, um, op-eds, uh, sometimes uh, legislative reports. And we, we do this with the goal of sort of providing this information to um, community um, organizations, um, to policymakers, with the hopes that that they'll take the information and use it to, you know, basically make the lives better, make lives better for black folks. Mm. Um, and so I, it, what it has done for me has essentially given me sort of entree to, to the world of sort of policy and, it, and interacting with policymakers. You know, I don't know that unless you are sort of, you know, really on the um, advocacy sort of end of sort of psychology and, and, and used to going to sort of DC or, you know, to state capitals to engage in sort of advocacy, you don't, psychologists don't often have much interaction, if any, with, with, with legislators. Mm -hmm. And so being in this role as, as director has given me, um, you know, the opportunity to interact um, quite extensively with, with Black policymakers in, in particular. And um, it's it's been a really 
um, I would I would say overall a good experience. There was definitely a learning curve, um, and one of the things that I have learned in in dealing with with legislators and policymakers is that they they don't really understand academic research, and so when they want you to do something, they expect you to sort of have it done the next day, and they don't understand that when you when you're doing research, it actually takes time. You have right. to be methodical, and you know so. Sometimes there, you know, there've been tensions along the way, but all in all, I would say that it's been a very good experience. Um, it's certainly expanded my professional identity um, and, and the arc of my my impact um, as a as a black psychologist. So, you know, this is interesting to me. Um, something that I hadn't really put together um, previously. Earlier in my career, I was uh, on a diversity committee for our state state board. And as part of that, we would go to DC every year and do some of this advocating for different um, things in psychology that we wanted on a national level, whether it be insurance or um, what have you. And as part of that big conference where they bought people from, they bought the, every state had a board and all the boards from every state would come together for this huge conference. And then we would go on Capitol Hill and meet with the senators of the state to make the pitch for what it was that we wanted to do as psychologists, whole new world for me. And it was very interesting to me that we talked to the Democratic um, senator and they would say, or, the, or their representatives at sometimes, and they would say, well, that sounds very good, but you know how things are here in, in DC. Um, it's hard to get both sides. And, uh, and then we go to the other um, the Republican senator, and they would say the exact same thing. And it, and to me, I said, well, if both people know that this is how it's happening, it seems to me that you ought to be able to figure out a different way to stop that stalemate from happening and make things move forward. Um, and I just got really, really frustrated and said, that's not for me to be doing. I, I'm not going to waste my time talking to people who don't have an interest in really changing things. Um, but thinking about it from the perspective of somebody who was actually putting together the, or doing the research, putting together the information that goes into the policies that's being put forward. And I think now the climate with what we've just come out of in this election, um, <clears throat> I, I imagine that some of the work that you're doing is very, very um, necessary for people to advocate for change and for things that are really impacting us as a community. Can you speak a little bit to, to some, does that make sense? And can you speak a little bit? Yeah, to no, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's, you know, it, the word advocacy is really interesting because, you know, I'll sort of fall into my, my, my director speak here um, in saying that, you know, as a, as, as part of a public um, tax supported state sure. you know, institution, mm -hmm. you know, my institute cannot engage in advocacy. Right. Um, so what, so what we do and, and, you know, the presidents of, you know, the past presidents of, of the university have always been very clear that our mission as indicated by the name is we conduct research. We disseminate that research to whomever, and they and and they could use it for advocacy. And, and obviously, we want to see it used, you know, in ways that sort of you know advance our communities, Black folks in particular. Mm -hmm. But but we don't ourselves um, engage in, in advocacy. 
Um, so, you know, we always have to sort of make that pitch, but, sure. but no, but to, to your point, yeah, it is, it is very frustrating. So working with the Texas Legislative Black Caucus, uh, it is an overwhelmingly democratic sort of body, but they do have one black Republican. So it's always interesting. So when, um, uh, you know, the, the, the handful of times that I've been in their presence, you know, they can't, they don't sort of talk about the Republicans, you know, because they have a black Republican, you know, in their midst. Right. Um, and right. So they're, they're supposed to be bound by a common interest and goal of helping black folks, regardless of what side of the aisle they find themselves on. Yeah. But, but that's yeah. what, I've always found that to be a really interesting um, dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, what, I mean, one of the things I, I think I've learned from this role is that I, even though I am totally consumed with politics and I sort of, you know, probably watch way more than what I should. I really, in some ways, I don't like it. And for the reasons that you've sort of identified, like, I feel like that, that politicians um, really like just, for example, just what's, what's going on right now. We have so many people who are hurting in this country um, and who are, you know, losing, you know, losing their jobs, who are about to, you know, who can't pay rent, who are about to get evicted, who can't put food on the table. And, you know, and our representatives can't come together to agree on a financial package to help these people. I just, I don't have patience with that. Um, you know, they were elected to do a job to, to serve the people and they let their own politics, I mean, egos get in the way of that. So it's very frustrating to me. Um, so I would never want to be a part of that world. And um, so what, what, I, what I do in my role here as director is as close as I would ever want to get. <laughs> <laughs> so being able to see it from the side that you see it from and having the advantage of being in some of those circles, what would you advise people to do who are on the ground, everyday folks who are you know, watching this stuff play out? How would you advise or encourage them to deal with um, what we see as stag- stagnation in, in these situations? Yeah. Um... That's a really good question. And, and, and of course, you know, I deal with folks on the state level, so mm-hmm. which is you know, different, yeah, than, different than, 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 than the federal level. And so it's probably not as as bad um, as it is at the federal level. Um, but my, my general advice for dealing with with politicians and legislators and, and policymakers in, in general is, you know, you, you have to sort of know what mo what like what motivates them and and you have to sort of speak you basically you have to sort of massage their ego and you have to um you have to interact with them in ways where you know you make them sort of feel like they are and i'm probably speaking in too much of um, sort of generalities here but I'll, let me give, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I think I can probably, you know, sort of mm-hmm. speak to this better by giving specific, by giving specific examples. So with the, the policymakers that I, I've dealt with, um, and I'm thinking, of, you know, you know, of some individuals in particular, you know, they, you know, they, they're individuals who, who are used to being in charge, who are used to being catered to, who are used to sort of getting things when they want, um, and and so when you're dealing with them, I mean, at least I found that when I'm dealing with them, you have to um, sort of understand that that culture about sort of being a policymaker and and how they're so used to 
um, sort of being able to sort of control things and, and have and sort of dictate things. Um, and the other, I, I guess, and the, and the other thing that I've sort of learned is, is that what makes them happy is to be able to successfully pass legislation that makes them look good. Mm-hmm. And so if you can, so, so to the extent that you can provide them with something, whether it's, you know, anecdotes, I, I, it's been interesting because I've found, I mean, you know, again, as a, as a, as a, as a scholar, you know, we rely on on data, but but I've also learned that that with policymakers, that sometimes the most powerful things that will help get legislation passed, you know, could be the stories that they hear from people, um, the real life stories about the impact of policies on their lives, mm-hmm. and so then they can take those and they can take those, and then when they're sort of arguing for you know a certain bill they can refer to the the real impact so i would tell people just you know when you you know if, if you if you ever have an opportunity to to speak to your representatives your so policymakers your legislators just tell them you know just in in as in as honest a way as you can the impact that certain policies are having on your life and the lives of people that you know who are like you um, and when they hear enough of those stories, that can be very powerful. Mm. What would you say to people who feel like it's not worth it? Like why this system is, you know, not really looking out for me. Why should I even vote? Why should I even participate in it? They're going to do what they want to do anyway. Well, I mean, you know, certainly I can, I can um, sympathize with that sentiment because again, it, it's very frustrating um, it, passing significant policies can be a, a torturous process it can be very painstakingly slow mm-hmm. um, if it's done at all and so I, I, I understand that sentiment uh, I guess the only thing that I would say is look um, you have you know when it comes to sort of making policy changes like this is really where you impact people's lives the most. And it's not, it's not something that, that happens overnight. Um, and I think we, the citizens have to hold our representatives, our, our politicians responsible and accountable because they are there because of us. And, and, and as frustrating as it might be and, and as, as pointless as it might feel like sometimes, it is still, I think, our responsibility as citizens to to hold them accountable. Because if we if, if if you don't hold them accountable, who will? And things, you know, can never get better for your community. So that that would be my plea to people, um, recognizing and understanding, of course, you know, the source of their frustration. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let me shift this a little bit, maybe tie it in in, in a different kind of way. Um, earlier this year, we had the the horrible. Uh, the spectacle of um, the murder of George Floyd and which was broadcast to the world. And um, there's a lot, a, a huge reaction, a worldwide reaction that, that occurred. Um, can you speak a little to your reaction to it as a black man and a psychologist and a policy, well, a person that is doing research to create policy 
that could potentially change a situation like that. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you know, just, you know, as a black man, it it made me sick to my stomach. Um, you know, it we have these these incidents have have become cyclical. Um, mm -hmm. And just just during the time that I've been here at UT Austin, um, there have been several high profile incidents of this nature. And so it just it it, it made me sick to my stomach, um, it, and it and I think that 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 combined with you know obviously you know um, Ahmad Arbery you know you know was basically sort of you know um, hunt, I mean I I don't know how to put it other than to say he was basically sort of hunted down by these you know sort of white vigilantes who weren't even you know, law enforcement, at least one was a former law enforcement. And then of course you had, you know, Breonna Taylor. And so, you know, having those three incidents, you know, that occurred within a month or two of each other, um, it really just, I think it, it, it brought about, you know, I think um, this, this surge in sort of like um, consciousness, um, obviously it re reanimated um, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and, and what what I found particularly, you know, sort of powerful was that it also involved, you know, other people, folks who weren't black, who finally, you know, were able to sort of see what we have been saying all along in terms of our experiences and, and how we have been, you know, sort of mistreated and brutalized by by this sort of, you know, sort of white supremacist, you know, sort of system of law. So 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 my. The first point of my part of my, you know, sort of response is as a black man, it sickened me. Um, and it was, and, and so the way that I cope with um, sort of those sort of situations, um, and I, and this is just sort of the academic of me coming out, I write. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, I do some, I, I do a fair amount of writing in terms of public scholarship. So not the journal writing stuff, but writing for, you know, for the media. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I, um, I ended up writing a piece that was that that um, ended up being sort of titled it, um, "When Is Enough Enough," and it got published in um, an outlet called The Hill. Um, I don't know if you're are, are you familiar yeah, with The Hill? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I wasn't. I, I don't assume that people are because I wasn't before I, I got in this role. Um, but that was. Um, but that piece was really personal and poignant for me um, because I, I just I was very. I laid bare just my emotional reactions to to everything that was that was happening, and so um, so so for me, so as as the director um, of this policy institute, you know, I wanted to make sure that I was able to sort of speak to um, really broadly the implications of. Well, one, the, the psychological effects on black people mm -hmm. um, seeing, you know, having to sort of go through this and, you know, and, and, and linking it back to, you know, people like, you know, Sandra Bland, who who was, you know, who died here in Texas. Some people, some conspiracy theories would say she was murdered, but um, that led to direct policy changes because because as a result of what happened to Sandra Bland, we now have the Sandra Bland Act and there are certain things now that that officers have to do. Um, when they sort of pull someone over for, mm -hmm. you know, you know, traffic infractions, um, but but that's the sort of thing that 
that we need to see. Oh, and and the other thing that I guess to sort of directly re respond to you, one of the things that we've done as institute is um, we we were requested by um, one of um, one of the one of the only black senators here in, in Texas, Senator Royce West. Um, Senator Royce West um, is you know a tremendously influential uh, man, uh, very sort of well respected, and he contacted me because he wanted the institute to do some research for him because he wanted he wants to propose legislation around use of force and use of extreme force policies. And so his thinking was that he suspects that with the law enforcement agencies across the state of Texas, that they may that there may be some inconsistencies in terms of what in terms of how they use use of force, their understanding of use of force and how they apply it. Um, and whether they even have it or not, and so he he want he wanted us to sort of do some research to find out, you know, what you know, like what are the use of force policies, you know, in in these law enforcement agencies, um, and are they consistent? You know, do they you know do they have the same understanding? And again, he suspects that they he suspected that they did not, and he was hoping that our research could sort of provide him some data so that he could he could go to his um, fellow policymakers and propose a new bill that would that will require um, all law enforcement agencies to have a singular understanding um, of um, when it is appropriate to use um, use of force um, and, and particularly he was particularly interested in use of extreme force not just simply use of force because use of force um, could you know could include a lot of different things but particularly use of extreme force that use of deadly force um, there should not there should not be any it should be standardized. There should not be any room for officers from different agencies to have their own interpretations around when they can use, right. when they should use deadly force or not. So or that's who they, or who they use deadly force with. Yes, right, exactly. Right, that's very exactly. key there. Exactly. So I, that you know was a very meaningful um, and important, I think, in, uh, project to do on behalf of of, of the senator. Mm -hmm. So let's can we go a little deeper into the, you mentioned the psychology psychological impact and and I want to talk more about that because I think that is is really really important to to drill down on you know as a culture we don't we don't really talk about the mental health aspect of it I think it's coming along more now but traditionally we have kind of uh, kept things closed in and as black men we definitely keep things in as a collective. Um, can you speak about the psychological impact for you personally and then for black men in general coming out of all of these tragedies happening and then policy that might, you know, help some of that? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I, <laughs> I think I like, like many black psychologists uh, this summer was in high demand to to give talks on uh, and webinars to white folks laden with guilt on how to, you know, on, on the psychological impact of racism. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, so I, I, you know, I gave a number of those talks and, you know, and I, and what I, what, what I do in those talks is I, I sort of, I situate, um, what we are sort of experiencing now and have been experiencing, you know, certainly, you know, over the past, you know, 
20 years or so within the larger sort of context of of, of white supremacist terrorism mm -hmm. um and, and 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 what i try to do is to sort of say look we have been dealing with this you know you know since we were sort of enslaved and brought here and violently and all, all that but but what i do is i i sort of i go through um, a brief history of this country i will show um you know for example uh there's a book there's a book called without sanctuary which you may be familiar with without sanctuary you know the, those powerful and disturbing images of of, of black folks um uh, you know hanging um from trees and, and and various things and so I talk about, you know, sort of one, what is it like, let's talk about the psychology of white folks. And, and when right. you have white, right. you know, you, there's this one, I know you, I know you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. There's one yeah. picture in particular yeah. where you have these white children that are just like, you know, smiling at the, at the image of a dead, you know, body, black body. I'm like, so what, what does it tell you about the psychology of the people that thinks that it would ever be appropriate to bring children to sort of witness such a, a heinous, um, sort of act. So, so anyway, I, I go through that, and in, in terms of the the psychological impact uh, on, on Black folks, um, it we we experience vicariously every time something happens to a Black person. We don't have to know them personally or not, but we experience a sort of like a vicarious trauma where it causes us to. Um, you know, worry about our own safety. It, it causes us to worry about the safety of, of our loved ones. We, you know, you know, you start to wonder, can, you know, could this ever happen to me? Um, it, it can result in, um, you know, people. So for example, uh, you know, you've, you've probably heard of, you know, post-traumatic slave, but it, it causes us to really, um, manifest, I think, um, sort of the 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 physical um, sort of manifestations of of an act of of, of trauma. One of the things that I, I, I learned, um, or not not that I learned, but one of the things that I sort of now better understand, and, and you would know this, you know, being a clinician, when you start talking about post traumatic stress, and and you know, there's certain certain criteria, you know, that you have to so that technically you're supposed to meet in order to be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, but one of the things that, that has to happen is that, that the individual has to have had a direct encounter with whatever the, the, the triggering event is um, that, that results in, um, you know, the sort of the effects of, of that, that direct encounter with, with the, the stressor. Well, when we start talking about or trying to apply post-traumatic stress to black folks and when you situate it within this larger context of, of racism and police brutality, um, there have been black psychologists who have suggested that, look, um, just because, you know, George, what happened to George Floyd hasn't happened to me directly, doesn't mean that I can't still experience the symptoms that go along with post-traumatic stress because every time we see an image you know when we saw the when we saw the image of michael brown in ferguson missouri when he was killed by that white cop and his body was on the road laid for i think several hours they didn't even have the, the the decency to cover him up or to sort of move the body and and that image was projected for thousands if not millions of people to see 
every time we as black people have to see the image of a dead black body, it's traumatizing. And, and, and that's what I think people don't understand that I think folks have become so desensitized to violence in this country that they just, they completely underestimate the impact of, of, of constantly being exposed to um, these sort of images of dead black bodies. And for black people, um, it is incredibly, incredibly damaging. Um, and, and what it does is it, it communicates that there is no, that, there is no value of black life in this country that your life means nothing that this could happen to you someone that you love and of course when you when you have those sorts of thoughts um it's going to be linked to um anxiety it's going to be linked to the depression and we have seen elevated um sort of sort of depressive and anxiety provoked states during this time um, of all of these sort of high profile incidents. So there's, there's really, I think, I would argue, a direct link to, to these incidents and the overall mental health profile of black folks. Well, I can say um, on firsthand experience, every time one of those situations like that happens, that for the next couple of weeks in my practice, the energy is gonna reflect that. And people are gonna be talking about their issues that they're working on are put to the side because this takes precedence and it's front and center and it's painful stuff. People are forlorn, they're depressed, they're all those things you talk, that actually happens. Even it doesn't, after the, after um, in 2016, when, when um, the current occupant of the White House was elected, that was trauma. I mean, it was months that people were really, really, there was this sense of just depression and sadness that impacted our community. And I was feeling it every day when people would come in and talk about just, just how dark and gloomy it was for them. And so when you, when you see incidents like that happening and you see, um, things being justified in terms of the negative and abusive types of situations that we're faced with, it does have an impact. And um, that's what we need to talk about more because what can often happen, unfortunately, is when you close it inside, you, it's, it's gotta come out, right? You can't, we, we know this, psychologically, it's, it's like a balloon. You can only blow it up so far that air is is got to come out, and so it, it can come out in negative, destructive ways if we're not being proactive in helping people heal. Right. So the drinking, the the drug use, the uh, gambling, the uh, sex. Uh, I mean, all these different overeating, uh, all these different ways that it comes out and has a negative impact on us uh, as a people. So, you know, when we talk about trying to come up with healthier ways for people to understand what's going on and then move to a better space, I, I think it's, it's vitally important that we um, really help pro provide this healing for people. No, I, I, you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about when, when I, 
um, given some of these um, webinars about the psychological impact of racism, you know, toward the end, I, I, I talk about um, the coping um, that takes place and, and there's both adaptive and maladaptive coping. And so some of the examples that you, you shared um, or some examples that I, that I talk about and, and I give, you know, and, and, and I also sort of say, you know, as a part of what could happen with maladaptive coping, if, if, if this is not addressed, it could, it could manifest in, in some really, I mean, beyond just sort of like the self-harm, it could manifest in harm to others. You, you might recall um, in, um, in Dallas, there was a, um, a Black Lives Matter activist who I think ended up killing um, some police officers, th I think three or four police officers. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that's an example of sort of externalizing the pain from these these incidents. And we certainly you know don't want that either. Um, so so yeah, yeah we, we have to talk about ways that that we can cope um, that don't involve self harm or or harm to others. As a, as as a, as a, as somebody that thinks and just analyzes this stuff, I'm really surprised that doesn't happen more, um, because when you talk about a sense of loss, a sense of I can't do anything, these people can come and totally impact my life. When I think about like the the, the Central Park Five, right, and and the parents watching their children and can't do anything to help them, or this this um, brother that got murdered last um, few weeks ago in Ohio um, and the family can they're like we know everybody knows that this was corrupt and they can't I can't do anything or Brianna Taylor I can't do anything to get justice and people are kind of talking they're they're being condescending they're making it just the feeling of not being seen and not being heard and that nobody is listening. What we do with that energy, I don't know. It's almost like we've just been taught to suppress it and not do anything. Um, and it's amazing to me that like, it really is amazing that it doesn't happen more. Well, no, it, it, it is amazing. And and there's still and and there's yet another outcome that we haven't talked about. So you'll re, you'll recall when um, the brother in New York who who died um, by NYPD uh, Eric Garner um, from an illegal ch chokehold. Right. Well, the other part of the story that that is not known to a lot of people is that he had a daughter, Erica Garner, mm -hmm. and so as a result of what happened to her father, she became an activist right. um, to sort of you know, and she ended up dying. Mm -hmm at about what, 27, 28 years of age right. because of the stress of, of what she had gone through and what she, what she had experienced. Right. And so, so we don't talk about that enough either. Right. That, that, that in, in trying to sort of respond to the racist circumstances that we find ourselves in, that the activism can take its toll psychologically and physically. Right. Yeah, and it, and it certainly did. Yeah, she, it, she had a heart attack, um, but when you're, out there trying to get justice and you're not sleeping, you're not eating help. I mean, our bodies are like machines. And if we don't take care of them, then they begin to fall apart. And so those are some of the um, impacts, the, the, the residual impacts that you're right, don't get addressed and need to get addressed. So 
what are some things that you can offer in terms of healthy ways to do that? Like how, how do people cope with watching these politicians lie and, and, and not follow through with things? How do people cope with um, feeling like their voices aren't being heard? How do people cope with watching injustices happen? What, what, what can you offer to help um, <laughs> have some sense of hope? <laughs> I don't know if I'm the best person, brother, uh, you know, to answer that question, because I, you know, I think I have unfortunately have some unhealthy habits myself. For example, um, watching too much TV and, and being too, too um, attuned to social media. Uh, you know, what what I tell people is do as I say, not as I do. You should probably take a time out from. Uh, from all the negativity, from all the things that we now, because of social media in particular, we we are constantly exposed to all of this sort of negative energy. Um, so to the extent that people can sort of um, really divorce themselves from, from, from that negativity, I would say you certainly should, should do that. Um, you know, I mean, what I would offer is, is not sort of rocket science. It's, it's the things that we always hear when we talk about trying to be, you know, sort of more, more healthy, you know, you know, the exercising and the eating and, you know, healthy and, and getting enough sleep. I mean, so all of that is, I think, you know, sort of pretty, pretty basic. Um, and, you know, I, I do think, and I, I believe that you, you know, might have some appreciation for this as well, that, you know, we really need to um, tap into sort of what has sustained us over this sort of long sort of period of of really American terrorism, you know, and that is sort of, you know, spirituality. For some people, that's, you know, it spirituality and or religiosity. I, I would I would sort of probably promote mm -hmm. um, spirituality, but but I think for those who are, you know, sort of religious, um, there is a spiritual component to that as well. Um so I mean, you know, those that's I think something that that has always sort of sustained us as a people. Now, I, I do understand that for some people that that may not be enough, that, you know, it's sort of like, you know, you can, you know, you can only pray so much and the right. praying doesn't make the, doesn't make the dying go away. I mean, I, I hear that, I get that. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't have any, any great answers beyond what I, no has has sustained and helped us as a people but at the end of the day you know what we need to have happen is that we need to you know <laughs> be you know be rid of of, of 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 white supremacy and all of its sort of manifestations and and that's you know you know we we know what neely feller has told us about white supremacy and yeah. and the likelihood of it sort of ever you know completely going away is probably minimal so so i yeah i I'm, I, I think I'm rambling. I don't. I don't have a great answer to to your your, your question, mm -hmm. but all I can say is that those things that we know promote sort of a healthy sort of uh, living, you know, eating well. Which which I let me say this that that when we say this, you know, we 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 should also be mindful that saying that is easier said than done because when you're talking about people. Um, who I'm very attuned to sort of like the issue of food deserts. I'm very attuned to the fact that that it's it 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 is expensive to eat healthy. That that when you tell people to eat healthy, it's easier said than done because 
you know, depending on where you live, and this is something I have learned, you know, in my role as policy director, that you can have, I'll use that as an example, being here in Austin, our our best known um, grocery store is called H-E-B. Um, and H-E-B, H-E-B has been recognized as the number one grocery store in all of the country, if I, I'll just sort of add that. <laughs> but so you take the H-E-B grocery store and you can go to the east side. The east side is where you see, you know, predominantly black and brown folks. You can go there and you can look and you can see the types of food that they have. You can look at the quality of the vegetables. And then you go and look, go to H-E-B um, in north, northeast Austin, or you can go and see H-E-B in west Austin, which I never go to because that's just pretty much like, you know, <laughs> almost lily white. But you see a, a dramatic difference, same same chain, but you see a dramatic difference in the quality of the food and and and, and what's even available. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so you begin to see that there are these sort of larger systems at play. So when you tell someone to eat healthy, um, yeah, they should eat healthy, but do they have the same opportunity to get access to, to healthy foods depending on where they live geographically? They may or may not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's all part of this sort of this this system that I ultimately sort of link back to 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 white supremacy. Right, right. And it's important that we have people like yourself who are able to capably speak about what these issues are and shine a light on it in a way that we can have true change happening. You mentioned and 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 I'll. And I'll so you mentioned food deserts, and that struck out. I was just listening to an, a, an interview earlier today, and the brother um, on the interview, somebody used that word with him. He's, he was an expert in this in this area of food and, and kind of um, feeding uh, communities that don't have access. And he, and he said, we don't use food desert. We use food apartheid, because it's important for us to tell a story in our way, right? Okay. It's not just a desert. This is a, de- this is a designed system. Like they, HEB knows that one, com- one store in this community is, di- you could take a picture, you can do a video and show them, well, you, you know, that these stores are different. And it's not just where it's not just H-E-B, it's Kroger here, it's Food Lion here, it's Harris Teeth. It's all of these stores do the same thing. You you go and you say, wow, this store is like this. And then you go and cross town and this store is like this. That's by design. And so when we can speak to that from our own lens, that's a sense of power. And so as we as we close out, I want you to just kind of, because uh, I think this all ties in. I didn't expect to have this conversation about, um, um, you know, advocacy and and uh, well, not advocacy, but um, policy and, and, and all that. But I think it is so. There's a psychological component that underlies that that is so very very important. So if you can just kind of close us out and speak to why it's important to have people like yourself doing the work that you're doing and in in the impact that it can have in really producing change that allows us to um, really move forward. So the, 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 you know, that, that saying um, it's a different history 
when the lion is telling the story versus the 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 hunter. You know, I, I'm messing that up. Yeah. But you 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 know what I'm talking about. You you heard that. Before. Yeah, I know. I I do know what you're talking about. And so I, I'll say this: that again, you know, when I when I came into this role as director, um, I you know I, I came from a you know psychologist background um, and, and, and as an academic psychologist background at that, um, I wasn't trained in policy. I knew very little about policy. So um, I've, I've had to grow in this role. I've, I've been the director since 2013. And, and now I have a, a very, um, I have a very strong appreciation for the role and the importance of policy. And, 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 and it, it could be sort of succinctly stated like this that when you're talking about, you know, I've mentioned white supremacy a lot. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, people, you know, want to sort of, um, sort of develop sort of laws that, you know, sort of, you know, that can sort of change, you know, sort of, that can get rid of white racism, that can get rid of white supremacy. Like you can't, and you've heard this before, you can't legislate attitudes. You can't legislate morality. You can't legislate to, for people to change whatever is in their heart. But what you can do is you can legislate behavior. So you can say, look, you, you might be a racist. You know, you might have, you know, you might be, you know, you know, someone who has ill will towards people who are different than you. Um, but you, what you're not going to do, right, right. <laughs> what, you, what you're not going to do is engage in, 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 in policies and practices that, that systematically harm and disadvantage certain communities mm -hmm. um and so that's where it's important for people more people to, to understand the role of policy to and to become involved um and helping to try to shape and influence um and impact policy mm -hmm. and, and and i hope that i have in some small way um, been able to sort of do that in my role as director mm -hmm. good i'm sure that you are i mean you're a thorough brother we didn't even get to talk about um your being uh, former editor of the Journal of Black Psychology, you're teaching um, different courses. So we're going to have to, because that's a I, that's very important, and I want to have that conversation as well. So we're going to have to do a part two to this and really um, delve into some of that. But, you know, as always, the, the, the conversation takes us, takes us where we need to go. Um, right. It certainly plays a role in that, and we just allow for it to happen. This is a very important conversation, particularly during this time where we see... <laughs> what this country is doing and the way people are moving. Um, so we definitely need to have more of an awareness and more of an understanding of what it means to be on that side and people like yourself being in those positions, pushing the, the meter, pushing the, the, the road forward for us and advocating on our behalf so that we can undo some of this systematic racism that, that exists and create a better world for everybody, um, but especially for um, our people who've been so oppressed for so very, very long. That's right. Yeah. So again, I want to just uh, thank you so much for this. Uh, it's been a delightful conversation. And um, we'll look forward to having you on again moving forward in the future. And we want to say to our guests uh, and our listeners that we, we thank you as always for tuning in. And we want you to always remember to align your actions and your values and to live your life 86,400 seconds every day to the fullest. Peace, and we'll talk to you next time. 
In closing, I want to remind you to always be a critical thinker as it relates to your mental health and well-being. We always want to inspire you to consciously question your choices to ensure that you are doing those things that bring you happiness and fulfillment. Please don't forget to subscribe to our channel and share the information with others who might benefit. Connect with us on Twitter at HeartMindHealer and visit our Facebook and Instagram pages at Alashe Center, A-L-A-S-E Center. Our website is Alashe.net, A-L-A-S-E.net. And feel free to contact us for any consultations or questions you might have. Things that I might be missing Running too fast to stop to listen It's time to stop